if you read the the gospels the um in the in the background of the cradle is always the cross and um jesus didn't just come to to stay a baby he came to save the world and so christmas um cannot be fully uh, appreciated apart from that and in fact you know we're going through the book of matthew uh this is the next to the last sermon in our uh, series through the book of matthew as i said it's just been such a blessing to me and i hope to y'all as well um didn't necessarily plan it this way but the fact that we are speaking about the crucifixion last week and the resurrection today right at christmas time is um it's certainly no accident because this is this is um even in the book of matthew they uh, the angel told them you shall name him jesus for he shall save his people from their sins and so this is what jesus came to do and so as we celebrate his coming this christmas we want to remember that he came for a purpose and this is part of the purpose that um he came for so we're going to talk about this morning from matthew chapter 27 we're going to talk about the conquering christ the conquering christ but before we do let's pray together one more time father i thank you for this privilege this morning Lord Jesus, we thank you that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Christmas, Lord, truly does. It just always fills me with awe and wonder. It really does. The word became flesh. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God, and the word became flesh. That's amazing. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us. And as we reflect, God, on the work that you came to do, God, you came to seek and save that which was lost. As we reflect on that work this morning, I pray that you would give us a deeper and fuller appreciation of Christmas than we ever have before. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you do have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 27. and, And today we're going to be talking about the resurrection so the resurrection of course is important the 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 cross and the resurrection go hand in hand so we we talk a lot about the cross and rightfully so but if you have the cross and no resurrection then we're wasting our time and so the resurrection is as crucial as the cross and and together they serve as these the singular event the central event of christianity and of human history. And, and so the, 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 the story of the entire Bible comes to a climax with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I believe that this is what Matthew has been trying to get us to see all along. So that's what we're going to be talking about as we talk about the conquering Christ from Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 62. So if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand In honor of the reading of God's word, going to Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 62. We're going to read all the way to 28.15. It says, The next day, that is, the day of preparation, uh, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. 
Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled... With the elders and taking counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell the people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. The word of God. You may be seated. So we're going to look at Jesus' resurrection under Three headings this morning. Number one, trying to stop the unstoppable. Trying to stop the unstoppable. Number two, trying to believe the unbelievable. Trying to believe the unbelievable. And number three, trying to contain the uncontainable. Trying to contain the uncontainable. First, we're going to talk about trying to stop the unstoppable. So we're talking about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We say that the crucifixion would be meaningless without the resurrection. And that's exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. He said, If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. So the death and the resurrection of Jesus must go together. If Jesus died but isn't alive, we have no hope, and we're wasting our time. But Jesus said, because I live, you also will live. And we see here that Matthew never leaves what is one of the major themes through his entire book, and that is that Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. So Matthew consistently, more than any other gospel, has cited the Old Testament because most scholars understand, and it's, it's pretty easy to see as you read it, that he seems to be writing primarily to a Jewish audience. And so he's trying to persuade the Jewish audience that Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is the one that was foretold in the scriptures. And so he fulfilled all the scriptures. And therefore you should believe and worship him as the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. 
That's Matthew's point. And his point is still relevant for us today. If Jesus has, in fact, fulfilled all that was foretold about him, then he is, in fact, the Christ. He is, in fact, worthy to be believed in and trusted in and put in your whole life and surrender to him. He is worthy to be worshipped. He is the king. And that's what Matthew wants to tell us. And so, as we read uh, this morning, it says here that they put Jesus in a new tomb. So we talked about Joseph of Arimathea last time and how it was a rich man. And that in and of itself was a fulfillment of a seven year, 700 year old prophecy. Okay. And so he puts Jesus in a, um, a, a new tomb, which means one that is totally unoccupied. So you can look him up on the, uh, you can look him up online or you, um, if you ever get to go to Jerusalem, which I encourage you to do, if you ever have the opportunity, you can enter into one and they're just these, uh, ca- essentially a cave cut out of a rock. They have a very low, small entrance you, you have to pretty much stoop to get in there and then they've cut these shelves on in the rock basically where they would lay uh they would lay their uh, deceased family member okay so this was an unoccupied tomb this was joseph's tomb and so this would have been a very wealthy kind of uh tomb uh, that a very wealthy person would have had and jesus is laid in this tomb so what we see is that joseph and his disciples wanted to ensure that Jesus had a proper burial. This is this carries forth from from Judaism and and then carries forth into Christianity where we believe that people should be given a proper burial. That is a, not just a sign of respect, but traditionally speaking for Christians it has been a sign of the resurrection of the dead, which is why Christians again traditionally have embalmed their dead and have buried them in the tomb because Christians have always said that that the body will, ra- will rise from the dead to new life. Okay? And so they want to make sure that Jesus has a proper burial. Now, outside of these tombs, there would have been a, a rut kind of carved in front of the entrance that would keep in place a large round stone, which would be very difficult to move. So the stone was to keep in the stench and keep out the robbers. Okay? But this is a typical uh, uh, tomb. Okay? And so... Uh, we have now Mary Magdalene and the other Mary are there. And so we read that they followed them the night Jesus was crucified to see where he was laid. And so they did that clearly because they wanted to know where he was laid because later they had plans to wrap him with spices and fragrances and, and, and anoint the body and things like that because that was the proper way to bury in that day. And they wanted to honor Jesus in that way, and so they needed to know where he was. But of course, they couldn't do that immediately because Jesus was killed um, on a uh, Friday afternoon, which would have right, been right before the Jewish Sabbath, and they're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. So they had to see where the body was, and so they come back after the Sabbath on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, to see uh, to uh, do this. Okay, and so uh, we see then as the Marys, the two Marys were making plans in this uh, passage this morning. They weren't the only ones making plans. The chief priests and the Pharisees, the same ones who had killed them, and this is, what's, this is what's remarkable to me. They just killed Jesus, and they're still afraid of Jesus. They just killed him, and they're still afraid of him. They can't escape this nagging fear that even though he's dead, he's still going to cause them trouble. And they have no idea. 
They have no idea what's coming. And so, and so apparently they had heard what Jesus told his disciples that he would rise on the third day. And so most of the accounts of Jesus relaying that to his disciples seem to be seem to be kind of private accounts. We don't know how many people knew that, um, but apparently enough people did that the um, that the religious leaders found out about it, or maybe Judas had told them about it. But they know that Jesus had, prof- had, had told beforehand his disciples multiple times that according to the scripture, the Messiah, the Christ, must be killed and then on the third day rise. And every time Jesus told this to the disciples, they didn't know how to, they didn't know how to handle it. It bewildered them. It, it distressed them. They didn't know how to handle it because we talked about this a lot. The disciples had no theological category for a crucified Messiah. It was like a contradiction in terms to them. It's like somebody saying, it's like somebody referring to a married bachelor. It's like, that don't make sense. Crucified Messiah, that doesn't make sense. Right? There's no category for that. And so they just, they could not grasp what is taking place. And so, but Jesus had in fact said this. And so the religious leaders know about this. So once again, once again, they go to Pilate to try to deal with their problems. And the way I read this, and there's, there's probably more than one way, but the way that seems to make most sense to me is that Pilate has about had it with these guys. He knows that they've, they've manipulated him into the whole crucifixion deal to begin with, which he didn't like that in the first place. But he knew that he would have bigger problems if there was a riot in Jerusalem because Rome is looking over his shoulder. So he acquiesced, he knows that they, he was pretty much manipulated, and he's about had it with all this Jesus business, okay? But still they come to him and want to drag Pilate into it. And they say, hey, Pilate, this fraud said that he would rise from the dead, and we're worried the disciples might try to steal the body. And so Pilate says, well, you have a guard of soldiers, and it could mean that he's giving them a guard of soldiers, or he could, or he could mean you have your own soldiers. It's not exactly clear. But probably, I think, it's hard to say, but I think he's saying, you have your own soldiers. You go deal with it. That's your problem. I'm not being dragged into this anymore. You go deal with this issue if you're concerned about it. Okay? And so we have the scribes and the Pharisees in this instant at the end of this gospel here. After three years of Jesus' ministry, and they're still trying to stop the unstoppable. That's what we see here. Because no guard of soldiers and no sealed stone is going to keep Jesus in that grave. So we know they're wasting their time, but they just can't see how, how they are, how they're wasting their time. The promises in Jesus Christ, the promises of God down through every age were coming to fulfillment. Sin is being forgiven. Death is being Defeated. Jesus always wins. The seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.16 has come to crush the head of the serpent and nobody's going to stop him. Not even death itself. And especially not a bunch of brooding bearded men. (laughs) They're not going to stop the salvation of God. And so what that tells us, and what we need to remember, is that God, church, is at work in the world, and no scheme of the enemy 
can thwart it. The devil is on a leash. He can only do what God allows him to do. God's purposes cannot be stopped. And it's just always important to reflect on that and to remember that. Because, you know, I do it, you do it, we all do it. Sometimes we lament and we say things like, oh, man, this world is just going down the drain and things are so bad. And, you know, it just seems like unbelief and evil and godlessness are on the rise. And there, there may be a limited sense in which that is true. But never for one second, church, think that God is breaking a sweat. You might be worried. God's not worried. He's not worried about a thing. We can't for one second think that anything is going anywhere other than according to plan. The gospel cannot be stopped. It will be proclaimed, Jesus says, as a testimony to all nations. And then, and only then, the end will come. Today, perhaps in this room, or perhaps somebody watching online, and somewhere around the world, on this Sunday, as it becomes Sunday progressively throughout the rest of the world today, as the gospel is preached, the light of Christ will shine into dark hearts. The Holy Spirit will enter in. People will be saved. People will be snatched out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the beloved Son because the devil can't do anything about it. Light has come into the world we just read earlier and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness cannot overcome it. If it seems like the darkness is increasing, rest assured the light is increasing too until the day when the light of the world comes from heaven. And when he comes, all the world will see what we already know, that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And on that day, death and darkness will finally and fully be defeated and it will be painfully obvious on that day that no one can stop Jesus because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the religious leaders were trying to stop the unstoppable and so is anyone who opposes Christ today. He can't be stopped. Number one, trying to stop the unstoppable. Number two, trying to believe the unbelievable. If you look there in chapter 28, it says that Mary and the other Mary went to see the tomb. There was an earthquake. An angel descended, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, clothing as snow. For fear of him, the guards trembled, became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, don't be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples. Um, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they went to the tomb, told the disciples. And then Jesus appeared to his disciples after that. And they worshipped him. Okay. So if you're reading the Gospels, well, any of the Gospels really. You know, what, what always strikes me and what's remarkable about the Gospel account is really how understated they are, right? If you've ever read like a novel, you know, kind of like these modern novels, they, there's all these like, you know, like flowery descriptive language. But you don't, you don't have, you don't have a ton of that there. 
There's no real fluff. There's not a lot of embellishment. In fact, if anything's remarkable about the gospel accounts, it's how they describe such remarkable events in such unremarkable words. Oh yeah, and then uh, and then a man rose from the dead. Okay. All right. It reads a lot less like a fairy tale and, and a lot more like a, a, a witness testimony on the on the stand in the courtroom. And that's exactly how it's supposed to feel because the point of the Gospels is not to read like a fiction thriller, and that bothers some people, but the point, and, and it's not to enthrall you with riveting words, but it's to force you to, gra- force you to grapple with the brute historical fact that a man rose from the dead. We have to remember that that is the central claim of Christianity. And that, and, and I, it's just, I always like to emphasize, like, that's what makes Christianity unique. Anybody, anybody can say, oh yeah, I'm from God and you should listen to me. Right? Anybody can make up a religion. Any, you know, and, and anybody could say they had certain experiences that, you know, how can I possibly know? How can I possibly know that God appeared to you? But Christianity is actually unique out of every religion because it's not based on a theological assertion, but Christianity is based on a historical event. Either Jesus rose from the dead or he didn't. If he didn't rise from the dead, we're wasting our time. If he did rise from the dead, then you cannot ignore a man who rose from the dead. You have to make a decision about him. And that's what the Gospels confront us with. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then everything is true. You can, you can talk about Matthew and Mark and the other apostles. You can, you can talk about them and you can say, well, you know, they were self-deceived or they were crazy or whatever. You can say whatever you want about them, but you have to deal with the, with the historical claim that they are making. They are telling through time and history, they are saying he is alive because I saw him. Now, when someone tells you something, you can either choose to believe them or not. And there are different ways and, and things that we use to whether to determine whether what somebody is saying is reliable or not. But when I read the Gospels and when I read about the lives of the apostles and when I see the kind of men they were and, the, and what they were willing to do and to give up for what they say they saw, I don't think they're crazy. I don't think they were self-deceived. I think they saw a man alive from the dead and it changed their life. And when you meet him who has been raised from the dead, it'll change your life too. If Jesus rose from the dead, everything is true. God is real. Christianity is true. He is the son of God. He is the fulfillment of every promise. He is God's chosen means to bring a sinful and rebellious humanity back to himself. He is, in fact, the one who will return to judge the world. You see, these women went to that tomb but it was empty. An angelic visitor opened the tomb. And what's funny about this is it literally scared the guards to death, basically. And uh, But the women were okay. <laughs> you know, they were just, you know, they were scared, but they didn't pass out uh, like the guards did. All right? They didn't get it at first, but in terror mixed with joy, it begins to dawn on them what, what happened. And of course, they didn't understand it all at once, but hey, this tomb's empty. Wait, he did tell us that this was going to happen. 
He did have to die so that he could forgive sin, but now he is risen and alive evermore to save to the uttermost those who believe. And so they run to tell others, and um, and they don't believe them. <laughs> okay, and we know, and um, and this is kind of a side note here. Um, you know, there's lots of pointers, and and you know, lots of work has been done into this, and I encourage you to read it because to me it's it's very fascinating. But there's lots, there's lots of just. Uh, there's lots of these important, significant pointers that tell us that this isn't just some made-up story. And one of these is the fact that the Mar- that the Marys, the women, are the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And the reason for that is that because apparently at that time, women's testimony was not even accepted in court. Okay, So you might not like that, but that's just the way it was. So what does that mean? That means if you're a 2,000-year-old Jew living in the Roman Empire and you wanted to make up a religion that was centered around a man rising from the dead, you wouldn't make up a story where the first eyewitnesses were women. You wouldn't. The only reason that you would tell the story that the first ones who saw the risen Jesus were women, the only reason you would say that is if that's what happened. The first people to saw... To, to the first witnesses of Jesus of the empty tomb were women, and that's what is that's what happened. Okay, and so they run to tell others, but they didn't believe them. And uh, Peter and John, we know, go to check it out, check out the tomb, but they disbelieve. They disbelieve, and only later, when Jesus shows up in their locked room, did they finally get it. Now, there's lots of emphasis here on Galilee and. Uh, telling the disciples to go to Galilee. And um, lots of scholars think that it has to do with what seems to be a theme in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. And that is that, um, that Galilee seems to be the, the area of Israel where revelation takes place. It's those in Galilee who get that Jesus is the Messiah. It's those in Jerusalem that don't. And remember the prophecy in Isaiah, those who are in darkness have seen a great light. In, in the land of Naphtali, Galilee of the Gentiles, a light has shone. Isaiah chapter 9, I think, or 7. Um, they, they, this is the prophecy. Galilee is the, is the place of light and revelation. They saw him, and it's, only, it's finally when they saw him that they could believe the unbelievable. A crucified Jesus, a crucified Messiah. And despite the couple days that they had in just agony where their hopes were dashed, what they needed was a radical adjustment of their expectations. Sometimes we need a radical adjustment of our expectations. Sometimes what we expect should happen, sometimes what we think should happen, isn't what God wants to happen. And we won't be able to understand what's happening until we realize that we've had the wrong expectations. Think about this, church. Again, this is just so fascinating, just the historical nature of it. When you read the book of Matthew, these guys, these, the disciples are not portrayed as heroes. They're not portrayed as the sharpest pencil in the box. They're portrayed consistently as fickle, faithless, unbelieving, Well, they're presented a lot like us. And yet, when they see Jesus, something changes. Something changes about these men. And to me, this is some of the most powerful evidence 
for the resurrection of Christ is the change that it made in these disciples. You know, <clears throat> it's one thing if somebody much later down the line in history and religion gives their life for their religion because they weren't there when it started. But if these guys, the people who founded Christianity, the people who started Christianity, if these guys made it up, then they're the ones who knew it was a lie. If they made it up. But guess what? Every single one of these men, just about all of them, according to church tradition, went and died a painful, excruciating death because they refused to deny that Jesus was alive. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know many people that would willingly choose to die for something they know was a lie. And yet all of them did. Why? Because they saw him. And it changed their life. Jesus is alive. That's not, that's not, that's not like a pond the sky theological claim. That's a statement of fact. Right now, as these words exit my windpipe, Jesus Christ is alive. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is building his church by his word and his spirit. And one day, at the proper time, he's going to descend from heaven. And the Bible says every eye will see him. They saw him. So no crucifixions, no beheadings, no threats, no punishments, no exiles was going to change their minds. They saw him. And they believed the unbelievable. So number one, trying to stop the unstoppable. Number two, trying to believe the unbelievable. And number three, trying to contain the uncontainable. It says they were going and behold, some of the guards went into the city, told the chief priests all that had taken place. They assembled the elders and took counsel and gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. They bribed them to keep quiet, to tell a lie. That happens a lot. And they tell people, and they said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole them while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy you and keep you out of trouble because that would have been a big problem. And they took the money and did as they were directed. And the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So we, we, we see now the outcome concerning the Guards, okay, when they finally came to their wits, they run home with their tails between their legs and report to the council what had happened. And this is, this is crazy. They told, they tell the council what has happened. What the guards have to say doesn't bode well for what the council wants to believe about Jesus. Because far from keeping the disciples from stealing Jesus' body, which the disciples had no intention of doing that to begin with, what they actually have on their hands now is a bunch of guards who actually are not Christians, not for Jesus, but they have guards who are now themselves witnesses to the empty tomb. And get this, even the testimony of their own guards who aren't Christians and who wouldn't be biased towards the Christian position, even that testimony doesn't persuade the leaders that Jesus must be somebody different than who they think he is. You would think, you know, an angel showing up at the tomb would be like a sign. But apparently it's not a big enough of a one. So the council can't have this, so they bribe the guards to keep the news 
for themselves. Keep the news to themselves. And so, by trying to buy off the soldiers, what are they doing? They're essentially trying to keep a lid on the greatest news that there has ever been in the history of the world. That Jesus is alive. You know, when Matthew wrote his gospel, it was probably a few decades after uh, Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And so the, the, the church has, has been established. He's, he's had a, a good bit of time to reflect on things and, and how things have played out. And still, you know, probably, again, probably some 30 years plus after the, these events, Matthew can say the Jews are still telling the story. They're still trying to keep a lid on the greatest news that can be told, that Jesus is alive. But you know what? Despite their best efforts, you can't contain the uncontainable. It can't be done. You can't refute the fact that the disciples saw him and it changed them. And they were ready and willing to give their lives to proclaim this news to the ends of the earth. And we today, as the Church of Jesus Christ, 2,000 years later, across an, an ocean or two, if you count the Mediterranean Sea, here we stand worshiping Jesus as Lord because they saw him. And we believe and we know with them that Jesus is alive. This news cannot be contained. Unfortunately, the ones who are best at keeping the lid on the greatest news in history aren't Jesus' enemies, but his followers. Pointing the finger at me. We got good news, church. We got some good news. And we can't keep it to ourselves. You know, it seems like just about the whole world today celebrates Christmas. And you know, I was talking about it in Sunday school, and you may have a different opinion than me. That's fine. But you know what? Santa Claus is starting to irk me. And the real St. Nicholas, if he was a saint, would be appalled that people have statues of Santa Claus in their yards. But where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? We have an unbelievable opportunity this season to say, you know what Christmas is about? Let me tell you. It's about something better than you could give. It's about something better than any human, uh, uh, any, anything that another human being could possibly give you. It's about a gift that God gave to us. Something that could change your life forever, for eternity. Something who can make you into the person who you were made to be. His name is Jesus. He's alive. God gave him to us as a gift that we, we might be forgiven of our sins and brought into the family of God forever. He is alive today. Again, he leads his church by his word and his spirit. The Bible says that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The Bible says that there will be a day when a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, tribe, and tongue will be gathered together before the throne and before the Lamb, and they will sing together a new song saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. 
who was and is and is to come. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. That's what Christmas is about. This month we celebrate missions and we give to missions causes like Lottie Moon, like independent missionaries like the Johns. We give that because we celebrate Christmas. We give that because at Christmas, Jesus was the first missionary. We give because Jesus left heaven, the glory that he received in heaven, to come down and be despised by men. Why? To save us from our sin. And so what is that? What does that demand of us? Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. That means God will call us to go and to tell people who might not like what we have to say. But it doesn't matter because some will hear and some will believe and some will be saved. And brought to the eternal family of God. Because that's what Jesus did for us. And so that's what we do for others. You cannot contain the uncontainable. So let's, let's not try. Let's tell people this news. It's the best news that there is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord Jesus, you are alive. And we probably just do not reflect on that enough. You are alive. And that changes everything. And so, Lord, let us not inadvertently become like the religious leaders who tried to put a lid on the greatest news in the whole world. But God, let us tell. Let us love. Let us show. Let us speak that you are alive that you are God, that you are King, that you are the Christ, that you are the Messiah, that you are every promise of God come true, that you are the only hope for mankind, that you are the reason for Christmas, that you are, you are worthy of every gift that we could possibly offer to you because of what you have done for us. So, Lord, King Jesus, we worship you this morning. As your disciples did, we, we bow at your feet. And we worship you. And we long for the day, Lord, when you will return. Lord, you came the first time on Christmas. Lord, the Bible says you're coming back. A second Christmas. To deliver your saints, to judge the world to set up your kingdom, to remove sin and its effects forever. And we will reign with you forever. We give you praise, Lord, in Jesus' name.